Welcome to this episode of Revolution in Ideology. I am Nick. I'm Jared. And in this episode, we are talking about the function and the role of destruction and ruins in apocalyptic cinema. So we did an episode on Susan Sontag's like seminal article titled Imagination of Disaster. So check that out. And in that episode, Jared asked me a question, essentially why massive, you know, wide scale destruction of material objects seems to be like a trope and important in the plot of many apocalyptic films, which is specifically what we've been talking about in this series. So I provided an answer at the time, which I am not happy with like in retrospect, but it doesn't matter because the reason we're doing this episode is to do a deep dive into kind of exploring the answer to that question. So we're going to cover the different functions that massive destruction and ruins play in apocalyptic films. Um, just a quick note on sources. There's going to be many, many sources that I'm going to quote from a variety in this episode. I'm not going to give a full, like, whatever, bibliography here. Just check out the show's description, and uh, we'll list them all there. I'll mention uh, most of them by name, but I'm not going to do, like, full citations and stuff. So just keep that in mind. But I do want to mention one of them that was kind of uh, crucial. It was the starting off point for me that I found when I started researching this topic that I thought was actually really good. And it was a paper that was presented at a conference by Scott Wilson, and it's titled Cities of Wrecked Desire, Post-Apocalyptic Cinema and Ruin Pornography. And he presented that at a conference in 2017, um, I think, in Portugal, if I remember right. He's a scholar from uh, New Zealand. So Cities of Wrecked Desire, Post-Apocalyptic Cinema and Ruin Pornography. And you can find that online. Uh, online. It's free. We'll have the link in the description. Uh, so that one was just one that I did want to give a shout out to uh, right away. Anything you want to add before we get started? No, I'm excited about this topic. Um, you did the deep dive. I'm happy to learn. So the first and I think most obvious function that we kind of just need to like get out of the way in the very beginning is that the presence of ruins and mass destruction and apocalyptic cinema functions as a plot device to establish the setting of the film, right? Keep in mind, we're talking about specifically film because that's what this series is that we're doing, but it really goes for any kind of apocalyptic fiction, though I do think that there is something unique to film, which we've talked about in past episodes. Like you're reading a book that's apocalyptic, you're creating this imagery yourself, but the film provides a next level of like spectacle that is provided for you. You don't have to do the work yourself. You can just passively like consume. Yeah. And like, obviously with modern like CGI and stuff, like it's getting more and more and more realistic. So I think there's something important there. It's a, a bit unique in film, something you don't get if you're just reading a book or a poem or something like that. Right. Yeah. Cue the critique on, on the growing lack of imagination because our imaginations mm -hmm. are being decided for us at this point. Yep. Right. So. Okay, so it serves as a plot device to establish the setting. So many post-apocalyptic films don't actually spend time because it's not crucial to the plot explaining the exact events that lead up to the apocalypse and or even showing those on screen and detailing, you know, the precipitating event of the apocalypse. They just start in the post-apocalypse and the presence of ruins or mass destruction lets the audience know basically the setting of the film, right? That it's post-apocalyptic because we see the ruins of New York, things like that. Uh, for example, The Road, which is made in 2009, which is like classic uh, post-apocalyptic. It was a book and then had a film adaptation. Um, according to Stephen Prince in his book, Apocalypse Cinema, quote, never literalizes the meanings or cause of the bleak world it depicts. 
He continues, quote, the devastation itself provides sufficient grounding for its narrative. Then I have another uh, quote here from art critic Richard B. Woodward. He says, quote, cliches of a sailboat in the street or cars floating down a river can summarize in a jarring image how ordinary life is flipped upside down by the sudden disaster. So in this function, right, the destruction and the resulting ruins really just lets the audience know that, like, we're not in Kansas anymore, right? Like, this is a, a different place and a different time. And like the rules of modern society no longer really apply right anything to add on that one no i mean it's just it's just it's it's an efficient um storytelling device rather than Mm -hmm. in this case say it show it right that's what film is supposed to do actually rather like all of the juxtaposition and not juxtaposition oh my god i used the wrong term um you know what i'm trying to say right Mm -hmm. right rather than why can't i think of it when they do the whole like long laundry list of like words like before what is that called again oh the like intro yeah like the intro like Exposition. Why did I say juxtaposition? Holy jeez. All right. Anyway, <laughs> you could have made juxtaposition work. I was waiting for you to make it work, but yeah, no, no, yeah. no, 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 no. I use the wrong terminology. Yeah. My, I'm an idiot. Like, but yes, no. <laughs> the exposition, rather than say it, show it, and and this is just part mm-hmm. of that cliche. And I, that's not unique yeah. to just obviously apocalyptic films. That's okay. all films. But I think it's yep. very important for apocalyptic films. I think it's almost more important than others. So, um, I think actually yeah. a really good example of this, which I just thought of, it's not even in my notes in this section, is. The Statue of Liberty at the end of the original Planet yeah. of the Apes, right, where he finds out that he's been on Earth all along and it was like a nuclear blah, 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 right? Like all they do is show the Statue of Liberty buried in the sand and all of that exposition is done, right? We get that entire backstory just right. from that one like iconic scene, right? And so so that's where film, I think, is actually in some ways more effective than, than mm-hmm. books or, or other forms of media because I think it, 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 it saves time in that regard. Mm-hmm. And that's actually one of Sontag's argument she talks about this, you know, pretty extensively in the article, uh, that, right. That film is, provides something different than science fiction yep. literature, right? Another function of destruction and ruin in apocalyptic cinema is it provides a break in the symbolic order. And Scott Wilson in the article that I mentioned earlier talks about this. He talks about symbolism within film and he adds quote, Outside the darkness and safety of the cinematic experience, the pro-filmic world mobilizes signs in the same way. Chains of signification wherein the literal objects we encounter and utilize, the articulations of power and intimacy, the multitudes of minor and forgettable interactions we endure over the course of a day all stand in for other things beyond their immediate presence. So we all know, you know, this theory of, um, symbols, right? Something that represents something bigger than itself, right? And classic examples I use if I was like teaching a sociology class, like an interclass, right? Like the police badge or a flag or a cross, right? Each of those things are physical things, but they represent something much more than just like a piece of metal or fabric. Like literally when I'm teaching intro, we talk about, you know, it's ink and colored threads woven together in a very specific pattern that makes a flag, but that flag means something else than just like the sum of those parts, Right in any Mm -hmm. of the thread or the color or whatever. Like, obviously, that's easy for people to understand. Yep. But what's important in apocalyptic fiction is that the cities and the buildings carry a very specific meaning as well that's important. Wilson continues, quote, A building is both a literal structure emerging as a consequence of a long and complicated set of arrangements and interactions, and at the same time, an articulation of power, mastery, and even hubris so yeah I have just a, that, oh go, go ahead. ahead 
Oh, it's that idea that we often bring up in class when we're talking about like resistance movements and why they choose certain like mm -hmm. targets, these monuments. It's this idea of monumentality where, yes, mm -hmm. it is a physical utilitarian space used for whatever governing or in the case of, of the Bastille, we talk about it. It holds political mm -hmm. prisoners fine. Like that's its utilitarian purpose, but it means much more than that, right? There's that symbolic monumentality about it. So, yeah. Yep, Exactly. And I just have here in my notes, right, a perfect example of this is 1996's Independence Day, in which the aliens destroy the Empire State Building in New York City, the U.S. Bank Tower in Los Angeles. And then most iconically, it's like the most famous scene that's used in every clip is they blow up the White House in Washington, D.C., right, like completely. Just to give an idea of the importance of the symbolism, right, of this destruction, seeing the White House blown up in, you know, as I say 4K, but that wasn't around back then, but whatever, you know, in high definition, um, whatever, I'll say it actually was back then, but we don't need to get technical on film resolution. Anyways, right. um, seeing that in high definition, right, CGI that was really high quality for back then in 1996, right? Anyway, okay. so symbolism, yeah. right? So it's symbol <laughs> in the films. For the audience, right, it symbolizes this end of this symbolic order, right? When the White House is destroyed, when the Empire State Building is destroyed, right, these buildings, these cities that, have, that are monuments to, you know, in theory, the abilities of man to create such a structure, right? And they also represent other things, right? Like the political system, the White House, right, mm -hmm. represents American democracy. Um, the New York, the Empire State Building and the U.S. Bank Tower, right, those represent capitalism and finance and so forth. So by showing this, getting destroyed in the film, right, this has a huge symbolic effect, right? It represents a break in the past and a movement onto the future. And I have related to this sort of like a subsection is it provides a certain symbolic closure, right? It provides like a bookend on the past. So the creation and existence of ruins, the material world specifically in apocalyptic fiction, indicates to the audience that there's no going back, right? That the past is definitely over, that the survivors couldn't rebuild even if they wanted to, no matter how many of them there are, right? Like you're not rebuilding the Empire State Building in a post-apocalyptic world. Like that's not happening. So the setting is perhaps geographically the same. You may still be surviving in New York City, but symbolically it is completely new, right? And you're forced to, the, the characters are forced to exist in this new world. So for the audience, it really functions to let them know that like it's over, right? And many, if not all things that held meaning before, the way that we navigated, you know, the symbolic order in our day-to-day -day interactions, those things no longer exist, right? So you don't have to have this like really intimate view of people's norms breaking down. You just show the Empire State Building blowing up and that serves that function, right? So what I was thinking about um, when I went through this part of, of our notes in this case was... Tying it to the idea of the, um, well, yeah, I mean, the, the pornographic, right? The, the ruined mm -hmm. porn. But in this case, and we've talked about this with some other episodes, this destruction, is this part of, of that same kind of discourse on us feeling a certain way, almost mm -hmm. exuberance at watching this? Is, this? is there a connection there since you've done this research? So for me, and, and I'll give you my specific example. Why don't you watching wait because that's coming later. Okay, I was like, watching the White House get blown up was actually awesome for me, right? Like, yeah, for, no, that's for, funny. Put yeah, a okay. pin in that for a minute. Okay, that's what I want. If we're yeah. going down that road, okay. Mm -hmm. So just an example of this symbolic closure, whatever, this bookend 
I like the example. I guess I want to be clear. In film, it was awesome watching yeah, that. I guess an right. Independence Day. I'm not just to be clear for our right, our, our, case, our new yeah. listeners or viewers or whatever. Like on the <laughs> film, it was just a cool effect. Okay, yeah. <laughs> in I Am Legend, the Will Smith version, <laughs> right, which was I don't know, 2000 something, 2009 maybe or something. I don't know. Anyways, I only say that because there's another one that they're working on now. Um, the only real destruction in the film is when the military blows up the Brooklyn Bridge and the Manhattan Bridge, really like symbolically separating Manhattan from the mainland because they're trying to isolate the virus. And he's basically the only one left, right? So here we don't have like massive destructions of the Empire State Building or anything like that. It's just the two bridges. And they're now like iconic, right? Even on the movie poster, I think the bridge is shown as like blown up, right? So this serves two functions, right? A, it makes it logistically impossible for Will Smith, his character, to leave Manhattan. Like, yes, of course, he could have crossed the river, bought, got some little boat or whatever, and found a way, right? There are other ways across. But, like, there would there were at least significant barriers to him figuring that out. So basically, it functions to show that he's isolated on this island. He can't get out, right? It also serves as an indication that he can't, quote unquote, go back to normal, right? For all intents and purposes, the rest of the world doesn't exist. He is the lone survivor, as far as he knows, on this island, and there is no going back, right? He can't cross that bridge, uh, both metaphorically and literally, right? So it's like this bookend on the past, and it functions to show that he can only move forward and survive, which is the plot of the film, right? Yep. Then just as kind of a little tangent, which I loved, the question arose in this research, why New York? Because New York is by far the most common city in these apocalyptic films, this, this setting, right? Or at least even if it's not set in New York, if we're showing like global destruction as an example, I there, promise you there's going to be a clip of New York getting destroyed, right? So there's With a really the, interesting, uh, uh, there's actually a book by a professor of architecture named Mac, Max Page. And it's titled The City's End, Two Centuries of Fantasies, Fears, and Premonitions of New York's Destruction that was written in 2010, where he actually goes through, you know, the history and the meaning of New York's destruction in fiction, which is fascinating. But a professor of architecture, uh, another one by the name of Beth Weinstein, wrote a review of that book. And they asked the question in this way, a quote, why not Rome or Tokyo or Paris? And then they provide some reasoning. Rome was famously sacked and reemerged, so there's no fantasy to be had there. It's already basically already happened in Rome, so we don't need to have that as a fantasy. Tokyo and Paris are both too flat. They've got no tall buildings except the Eiffel Tower for superheroes to leap over or supporting characters to fall from, as it suggested in Laurie Anderson's O Superman. New York, with its density, its heights and depths of ambition and achievement, its ego, wealth, and skyline creates a dramatically varied setting for heroic action. More important, perhaps, through the experience of film, literature, and diverse popular media, we are all New Yorkers. We walk its streets weekly on crime dramas and sitcoms. We ride its subway trains and music. Whether real or vicarious New Yorkers, we identify with the city's glory and with its downfall. So I think there's really two main points she has here, right? It's just the the skyline of New York lends itself to this kind of spectacle because it's so tall and so dense and so forth. And that pretty much if you live, you know, if you're consuming this media, you've seen enough of it where you can relate to New York in some way. You know what the culture is like. You've seen the subway system in film and music videos and so on. You've seen the streets. You've seen Times Square, right? So she says, you know, you're kind of like a vicarious New Yorker. So when that city gets destroyed, that means something for you. Even if you've never been there, even if you don't live there, even if you're not American, 
it's sort of like the global city, right? I hate to say that, but in this case, I think that's true, right? Thoughts? There? I like that. I like I, I like that quote. I never thought about it this way. I still, and I'm probably going to show my my bias here. I still lean towards like just American exceptionalism. I think that's mm-hmm. why a lot of this takes place. Like, yes, the architectural argument is something I had not considered before, so I actually appreciate that. Um, but I do think there's just like a lot of not just New Yorker ego. I think U.S. ego here. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think that's what this is about. Also. I mean, it's kind of hard since like the majority of apocalyptic cinema, at least coming out of Hollywood, is clearly U.S. American. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so we're always going to be the heroes of the of the story Mm -hmm. and all that other stuff. But but I don't know. I I find it appalling. Honestly, I I really want to see apocalyptic films in other places. Right. Sometimes we'll dance around it. I think the end of what's the M. Night Shyamalan film with the plants? What's it called? The Happening that Mm -hmm. ends in Paris, like I think with a scene in Paris or something like that. Um I think the Cloverfield um, ends somewhere else. Like it's in New York. Like the first one's in New York, but I think it ends somewhere else. You can correct me if I'm wrong on the Cloverfield. I've never seen that film. You've never seen the Cloverfield trilogy? Mm -mm. It's not bad, actually. I mean, the first one's like that found footage thing. Oh, is that the one with like the monster? I have seen the first one. Like yeah. the big anyway, thing. Yeah. I've seen the first one. You get the idea. Even the Transformers one, I think, ends up in LA instead. But regardless, Mm. back to the, back to the, the premise here. I do think this architectural argument is actually really good. I still think it leans more towards like, again, American exceptionalism, like, like everything mm-hmm. that's ever happened in, of, of world consequence has some sort of connection to the United States because we're that arrogant. Um, but that's just yep. my opinion. So. Yeah. Agreed. The next function of ruin and destruction in apocalyptic cinema is it functions to historicize the present. This is crucial to the plot of the film, sort of like sort of like the symbolic bookend, right? Is that it enables the characters to move on from the past into a new world. And it serves a similar function for the audience, right? So when we see the destruction, we know there's no going back. We know the character, like, I don't know if there's a single apocalyptic film where they try to re- rebuild the exact world that just got destroyed, right? Usually the plot of the post-alocalypse apocalyptic film is them going out into this new world whatever that is right like on the road man and boy go out and try to survive in this new post-apocalyptic setting right scott wilson in the article that i mentioned earlier says quote post-apocalyptic cinema provides an aesthetic template to allow for the historic historicization of the contemporary period and what we are seeing with the establishment of ruined pornography as a documentary practice is a movement towards the recognition of the contemporary ruin as being both part of history and an indicator of our own place in history. Not somehow immune to history, but subject to its forces continuously in ways that trouble and unsettle us. Render rough the smooth, and which might just force us, like Walter Benjamin's Angel of History, to consider the detritus of our actions gathering at our feet. I love that quote, right? So he's saying it's a way for us to view the present as history in the moment, right? We can, through consuming this media, through seeing it presented to us on the screen, instantly view the present as history, which is a very challenging thing to achieve, right? You can imagine like, okay, 20 years in the future, what am I or what are people then going to feel about the current era, right? And you that can be like a thought experiment. But by seeing it on film, we can see it play out and see in our minds and our imaginations, like, right, how we feel about that. We have a certain reaction to that happening. It's instantly historic, right? When we see it destroyed, which I think is kind of interesting to think about. What are your thoughts on this? 
I forget which of our earlier episodes and studies we were talking about where one of the major functions of of all of this was to give meaning to our current context, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's very hard for us to place ourselves like on this long historic timeline, whether it's linear or circular, whatever your personal beliefs are. It's very hard for us to place ourselves. And this is just another way, this, this ruined pornography of a way to contextualize ourselves. Like we appreciate that. And maybe you can remember who, who the exact, um, writer was on the article that called this out. I want to say it's Hamonich is the author of the seven functions of apocalyptic cinema. I think it might be, but this 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 situates us. This situates our existence, and it gives it actually more meaning. Like the mm-hmm. era I am existing in matters, and I think that's a big part of it that that's touched upon here. Um, which is, I mean, it's super interesting because also, as he mentions it, we can also consider it kind of sad. Like it might be the death of things, but I actually also think people again. I don't know that the sadness is, is, is a big effect. And maybe I'm just mm-hmm. maybe maybe I'm just speaking for myself here. I don't know that the sadness of, of of end of an era that this is meant to represent is the primary function. I think the bigger function is is almost like a celebration. Like my existence mattered because I am near the end of it all. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. No, yeah, hundred percent. I like that a lot. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, actually we'll get to it in a second. So I won't mention it here. I'll bring it up in a minute about creative destruction and this like idea that the destruction actually symbolizes the opportunity for a new future, right? Et cetera. I think that's important, but you're right. Like this helps us feel significant, which is like kind of ironic, right? The destruction of the present makes us feel like we are historic beings that like you nailed it. I think that our lives matter, that it's significant, right? It provides well, and meaning we always for want to us. feel that. Like Mm -hmm. even with like current news stories, right? If a news story happens and we have some sort of like seven degrees of separation, we Mm -hmm. like to tell people about that. Even whether it's a a celebration, uh, celebratory news event or a tragic news event, we don't care. If we somehow can make some sort of long convoluted connection to it, make it about us. Somehow we make it about us. And that's Mm -hmm. a common trope, right? That happens all the time. Oh man, there was this horrific, I don't know, let's say murder in South Florida. Uh, well, I was on vacation in South Florida two weeks before it happened. Like the, these weird connections that we make, right? Which yeah. is, I think, that the point of Weinstein before, right? Is this, we're vicarious New Yorkers. So when we see the Empire State Building get destroyed yeah. or we see Times Square, right? We might not think like, oh, wow, I live there. But we think like, wow, that's like somehow relates to me, right? Yeah. Somehow. I've it's all about it. me. We're a very yeah. myopic culture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Um, next. Ruin and destruction in apocalyptic cinema serves as a metaphor for modern man's eternal conflict with nature. This one I was really surprised to find, and I actually might, we might do a whole episode on this essay because I thought it was pretty damn good, but it's by German sociologist, George Simmel, who's like a famous sociologist, if you know anything about sociology, uh, writing in like the, I guess, early 20th century. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this essay is from 1911 and it's titled The Ruin. And he suggests that ruins, and he's not focused on apocalyptic literature or fiction, but he's saying like actual ruins. Um, He suggests that they symbolize man's struggle with nature and importantly, nature's eternal dominance over man. He says, quote, the moment the buildings decay destroys the unity of the form, nature and spirit separate again and reveal their world pervading original enmity. As if the artistic formation has only been an act of violence committed by the spirit to which the stone unwillingly submitted, as if it now gradually shook off this yoke and returned once more into the independent, lawful order of its own forces. Then he continues, according to this cosmic order, the hierarchy of nature and spirit usually shows nature as substructure, so to speak, the raw material or semi-finished product. 
the spirit as the definitely formative and crowning element. The ruin reverses this order. What was raised by the spirit becomes the object of the same forces which form the contour of the mountain and the bank of the river. Any thoughts on that one? I think that's interesting. There was even a, a PBS docu-series or maybe it was a Nat Geo, one of those mm -hmm. that, that was like, and it's probably 10, 15, 20 years old, mm -hmm. that I used to like to watch like what's going to happen when humans are gone, like after yes, humanity. Yeah. It. Yep, what's I've that? seen that too. Yeah. I've seen that one too, yeah. And I loved it because I actually thought things looked obviously way better without us because mm -hmm. uh, I'm a hater apparently. But um, but how nature would basically reconquer the cities and you'd see the mm -hmm. plants like growing all up, uh, you know, the vines going up the buildings and animal life like running down like, you know, Sixth Avenue or something along those lines. Like I do think there's something to be said there. Like and he wrote this all the way back in the 20th century. So, you know, I'm not going to mm -hmm. blow any minds here with my, my, my uh, addendums to what he's saying. But I think – I do. I think that there is something honestly romantic about it. Like mm -hmm. there's, there's this idea and we've talked about it while we've been digging into the apocalypse that we, one of the, one of the functions, one of the fascinations is somehow, some way we recognize where the trajectory we're on is wrong. What, for whatever reason, doesn't matter politically, economically, environmentally fine. We, we, we recognize that subconsciously. And so we kind of like these films to like, maybe, Hey, this is going to be a fresh start or maybe we're done if we're an anti-humanist film, right? Like, fine, we're done. And then the other part of this, the ruins represent that. And when the ruins are taken back by nature, it's almost like, okay, here is a fresh start with or without humanity, the earth's getting this fresh start. And I mm -hmm. do think there's a romantic appeal there. Um, and it's kind of interesting that he's writing at the turn of the 20th century there because that romantic literary movement was actually winding down right at mm -hmm. that moment in time. So, um, I have two examples of this that are just, I think are good that actually stuck out to me personally when I first watched 12 Monkeys in 1995 when it came out. And if you don't know, it's based on the 1962 French short film called La Jetée. Um, in that film, a deadly virus wipes out almost all of humanity and the survivors are surviving underground. 34 years after the apocalypse, one of the film's protagonists, played by Bruce Willis, goes on an expedition above ground to try to collect specimens, I think, if I remember correctly. But the, And it's in the city of Baltimore and it's winter, so there's snow. But this is when you're first, as an audience member, getting a view of what the world looks like after this apocalypse. And there's vegetation everywhere, right? Like the trees have overgrown and like the streets are overgrown with, you know, all these things. And then the first thing you see, one of the first things, I think he's like getting a bug and putting it in a bag and he like perks up and there's a bear behind him just like walking down the street, right? And then there's, he goes in, there's an owl living in this old, I think, library or whatever it is, this abandoned building. And he goes back outside and there's a lion pacing back and forth, looking down below from like a rooftop, right? So just a really good example of, you know, nature essentially winning out the battle, the long-term battle um, over man in Simmel's, you know, uh, suggestion. The other one is Will Smith's I Am Legend. Um, and this one is like iconic for the way that it used New York City because the CGI was getting so good at that point, right? And they actually cleared out the streets, which was like no film since has really had the budget or the logistical whatever uh, able to do that. So the streets were actually empty and then they CGI'd, right? Trees everywhere and like weeds everywhere and like flocks of birds. And in the film's opening scene, one of the opening scenes, he's hunting deer uh, down the street and it, his hunt gets interrupted by lions that are also hunting the same deer, right? So the lion comes and kills the deer. So it just shows that like land, nature has essentially reclaimed the city. So man has lost this battle. You know what I mean? 
Um, mm-hmm. Then he makes, Simmel makes an interesting point that ruins caused by humans don't seem to have the same meaning, right? And he uses Rome as an example. He says, a good many Roman ruins, however interesting they may be, lack the specific fascination of the ruin. To the extent, that is, to which one notices them in notices in them the destruction by man. For this contradicts the contrast between human work and the effect of nature on which rests the significance of the ruin as such. So I think there's a, some like importance here, like the symbolism of decay, right? That the destruction by man isn't nearly as impactful for us in, you know, Simmel's context compared to the decay that is just caused by nature over time, which is why I think that both, I picked both 12 Monkeys and I Am Legend here because it isn't about cities being destroyed, right? Like I said, the two bridges get destroyed in I Am Legend, but it's just a time. Time has allowed these great cities to decompose basically and nature to, you know, regain its foothold. And I think there's something powerful about that. I will disagree. Um, so, only because Simmel is a product of his time in this specific case. I'm not saying one's more, I, 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 he's saying one's not as powerful and I'm actually going to disagree with that. I do think the nature one is powerful and really powerful for me. I think the human one is just as powerful now. And I will say this because he's clearly a product of his time. He writes in 1911. This is before World War I and World War II mm-hmm. and the Cold War and the threat of nuclear fallout and all those types of things. I think based on some of the other articles we've read who use all of those contexts to argue for the appeal of these various tropes that we've been digging into in these metaphors, I think that's – so it's, I'm not picking on him. I just don't think – at that time, there was no – in 1911, there is no way, I suppose, to imagine the whole scale destruction and what that might mean the way there would be a little bit later on. So he's right. There's definitely before- no technology that existed that would have allowed man to completely eradicate himself from the planet of the Earth. Because the later products all do kind of ro- mm-hmm. romanticize is not the word I want to use, but use it as as metaphor, right? Like mm-hmm. either a nuclear fallout or again, I mean, even looking at like the mass bombing campaigns, what did London look like after the V rockets and things along mm-hmm. those lines? Or I mean, again, horrific examples of Hiroshima and Nagasaki or Dresden, Germany, or those types of of images i do think actually also um are power are just as powerful as the nature mm-hmm. ones and those are human caused now i think the reasons they appeal to us are still very divergent between like the whole nature taking things back versus hum, uh, in this case humanity seeking its own end which is mm-hmm. is obviously a whole different topic but i do think the power part of it and and that's the only thing i'm disagreeing with him is equal at this point now i do Although I guess I'm the one that used the actual word power, right? More powerful. He just says it's not the same, I guess. Okay, okay. It lacks the specific fascination of the ruin, he says. Whatever. Yeah. Also, he's not putting this in the context of apocalyptic cinema, clearly, right? Right. He's just talking about like actual ruins that exist. Anyways, so that's Simmel. Interesting there. We might actually do a whole episode on that essay because I thought it was pretty uh, interesting. Next. And Jared alluded to this earlier, right? One of the functions in of destruction and ruin in apocalyptic cinema is that we get to live out our destructive fantasies. And this is Susan Sontag says this in the imagination of disaster, quote, one can participate in the fantasy of living through one's own death and more, the death of cities, the destruction of humanity itself. I'm sure we could do, you know, an entire episode on the Freudian and psychoanalytic, you know, death drive and so forth. Um, we're not going to do that because I don't want to, but we could, right? That we seek this kind of 
specifically nowadays, right, the spectacle. We don't actually want to die. We just want to see death, right? Uh, going back to uh, Kapeva's article, right, in that edited volume on the spectacle of death and so forth, right? We definitely are seeking that out. And cinema, as just one example, is all too happy to provide us, a, you know, a two-hour window for us to live out this fantasy or whatever, right? Anything to add on that one? I mean, it's purely symbolic. So, like mm-hmm. when you when you see things like an Independence Day, like the White House blowing up, like like there is kind of a pornographic part of that where you're like, "Wow, the end of the political order that I am quite frustrated with." Which, again, mm-hmm. for someone like myself, yes. But then when you think about it, that's merely fantastic, right? It's a fantasy when mm-hmm. you think about it from and and film allows us to have that feeling when you think about it in its real applicability that's horrible like there are people that work there and live there and like you don't actually want that to you really actually from an ethical point of view don't necessarily want that to happen and there's this kind of like uncomfortable like in between air area that i think the film allows people to like again feel that for just a second right would but when they think about what the real consequences of something like that actually happening are it's very, it's very different, right? Does that make sense? No, I kind of, yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And I think, in fact, that's kind of part of the appeal, at least a small appeal of apocalyptic cinema, is that it brings that internal conflict, right, to the top of our minds. Yeah. Where partially we like, wow, I would enjoy the, you know, destruction of the world order as I know it because I struggle with it so much. But we know, right, that actually trying to survive in that environment or what might come after would most likely be completely atrocious. Right. And absolutely miserable for the vast majority of people, if not everyone. Right. For sure. Right. And then, of course, like I said, the, 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 the suffering, the cost of suffering, even for people that, that you might not like or whatever, like mm-hmm. like most of us uh, have like empathy where, you know, most of us have that. To, and we don't we don't wish that that type of suffering upon anyone. Right. So. Right. Exactly. Um, next. And this one was really good. Um I don't even know what to title this subsection, but let's just call it, I have written in my notes, on neoliberalism and late stage capitalism and the necessity of precarity. And this came largely from a really good book titled Undead Ends, Stories of Apocalypse by Professor S. Trimble. Um, I forget where she teaches uh, off the top of my head. Anyways, uh, or where they teach, I guess I shouldn't assume their gender. Anyways, uh, they write about how destruction and ruin in apocalyptic cinema really is commentary on late stage capitalism and neoliberalism. So they say, quote, what we see and fail to see in ruined worlds is informed by a late capitalist moment in which speculating on devastated landscapes, mastering their meaning can be a profitable exercise. As thinkers from David Harvey to Naomi Klein to Stuart Hall have shown, neoliberalism promises freedom, but makes disaster. And it needs the disaster it makes. And this is so good, right? This idea that now we're at the point now where we're creating disaster on film because it's profitable, right? Not to mention the fact that we create, not we, but I mean, we do. Neoliberalism creates disaster in real life that it also needs to function, right? So in this case, like the disaster that's happening on film is mirroring our reality in advanced capitalism. Right. Well, and, and there's literally a term for it, right? In in economic and sociological mm-hmm. circles, disaster capitalism. Yeah, that's capitalism will that literally create to. actual disasters so mm-hmm. that it has a reason to create the solution and continue to exist, right? Yeah, and that's where when they say it needs the disaster it makes, right? It's necessary. Yeah. Like you just said, yeah. 
it creates the disaster so that it can then profit off solving that disaster, right? Providing 2008 housing crises and whatnot, mm-hmm. and 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 the complete failures of both the uh, the the answers to uh, Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Harvey. I mean, the, right. the the examples are just it's it's ad nauseum, right? Like, I mean, we can and I guess before we get someone that's saying you know this critique, right? It's not as if like the capitalists, quote unquote, are pulling all the strings and causing the housing crisis. It's just inherent to the capitalist mode of production that these things are going to happen over and over and over again. And as a result, capitalism flourishes more and more and more because it can profit off these disasters. Right. Right. Because it is the hegemony. So there's no Mm -hmm. Illuminati. Yes, there are some important big players. Someone's going to put in the comments something about Rothschilds or JP Morgan. Mm -hmm. Fine. Got it. Bezos's and so on and so forth. And and yes, they're very important. And yes, they do pull strings, but this isn't capitalism in and of itself cannot, it, it, its strings can't be pulled by any like small group of people or individuals. Mm-hmm. It is systemic, right? And it's the hegemon that creates these disasters that it then seeks to solve, right? Right. And you know, I have in my notes, in film, the catastrophe is typically instantaneous, right? It's the Empire State Building blowing up in the Independence yeah. Day, or it's a nuclear weapon going off, or it's, you know, whatever. Even if it's like a climate disaster, it's the tsunami in the film 2012 hitting New York City or whatever, right? It's usually instant. The real life catastrophe of capitalism is this, like, I use the term slow disaster, which comes from a scholar by the name of Andrew Culp, which we're definitely going to get to at some point in this series. But the slow disaster, right? It's happening very slowly. So much, it's like the whatever, the, you know, cliche, it's the lobster boiling in the water where they don't notice, right? Um, that's what we're going through right now in reality. So the film shows it to us like instantaneously, and that has a very like jarring impact. We yeah. actually don't even have that real life jarring because there are real life ruins and destruction that are created by late state capitalism. They're just happening slowly over time. So it's not, we don't experience the same thing. Right. And one look no further than Detroit, which is like the classic example of ruined pornography, people going there and taking pictures of the abandoned buildings and so forth. Then I have in my notes though, ironically, even Detroit right now is going through a resurgence where they're, you know, the Ford motor company bought the train station that has been, abandoned forever and they're renovating that and they're renovating you know all these things into like you know upscale hipster apartments and so forth like even the rejuvenation has now become profitable so it's even the cycle continues right so we're experiencing all of the same destruction and the ruins exist it's just at a slower pace than we see in the film so the film basically takes the disaster that we're all experienced as a result of advanced capitalism and squishes it down to two hours and has a very singular precipitating event that is instantaneous. And that is jarring for us, you know, anything to add there? No, I mean, you, you hit that. I was going to bring up Detroit, but you already did. And Detroit and, and I was going to make the joke of like, why bother? But no, no, just keep moving. Let's keep on moving. Uh, keep Trimble continues. Moving. I have one last quote from them before yeah. we move on. Trimble continues. Neoliberalism reproduced itself in spite of the mounting failures of ex- economic policies by telling emotionally pervasive persuasive stories about disaster and survival. These stories invite us to forget the violence that generates ruined landscapes and see them instead as freedom in the making, as new frontiers ripe for reinvestment. Recasting aftermath as opportunity, neoliberal storytelling scripts its subjects as enterprising, scrappy, poised to capitalize on fresh new zones of competition because we think and act and feel and fashion ourselves in ways that befit survival. And that quote actually continues and is fire, but I would have been here forever if I read the whole thing. We just get the idea is that 
the part of the function of this apocalyptic cinema, this capitalistic function, is to help make us all believe that we would be the survivors. Clearly, we would be the protagonists. We would be the heroes that would conquer this new, right, this new frontier, right? Um, Wilson has a good term that I'm going to come back to. We'll do an episode on this. I think he calls it pastoral utopianism, right? That this new pasture has been created. I've been using the term that I maybe made up. I don't know. I haven't checked yet. De-enclosure, right? We have the enclosure of the commons for most apocalyptic plots, right? It's the de-enclosure of everything. It's destroyed and like private property rights are outside, out of the window. And like now we can, the survivors are free to just go and reclaim and have this entrepreneurial spirit and take over. And we're going to live in that house, right? You mentioned in Zombieland, Double Tap, right? They're living in the White House as just uh, an example of this, right? So I think that was just an interesting point. Anything yeah. you want to add? Mm-mm. Um, the next function of this mass destruction and ruin is I have here, it function as a distraction from the real current problems. Essentially, it lets capitalism off the hook. Um, and I just have my notes like, and maybe you can, I can't think of a single example of apocalyptic fiction in which capitalism itself is named as the cause of the apocalypse. I'm sure that there are, but I can't think of any. The biggest stretch I can do, right, the most common are like, extraterrestrial beings or objects, biological agents, nuclear something, whether that's war or fallout, a climate disaster. And like, yes, it could be argued that climate disaster is a result of capitalism, but like they, I've never, I can't think of a film that directly says, you know, the capitalist mode of production is the cause of the apocalypse. Not that it would be in those terms, but like you get the idea. Can you think of anything? Where they actually use the terminology and the word capitalism at no, I mean, it's definitely inferred in a, in a lot of them, even the most recent one with the meteor, don't look up, right? It, mm-hmm. it, and that's not, the meteor is the one that is what actually right. ends, ends the world, but it is because of capitalism that we're unable to actually deal with it, right? So that's mm-hmm. inferred. True. Um, I, I don't, I don't know, not a popular film, numerous documentaries, for sure, 100% documentaries dating all the way back to like the Zeitgeist, right? That whole series they had going way back then. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't know. Um, no, I don't think so. Not in any popular films because the popular films are predicated on capitalism. Like it's Hollywood. They're there to make money. Right. You know, hardly any of the film, I guess I don't say hardly any, but like the vast majority of the apocalyptic films, the apocalypse is not self-inflicted, right? Except for like the nuclear ones. But usually it's like, you know, an asteroid, a monster, uh, you know, something like that. It's very rarely where it's, we actually inflict it upon ourselves. However, very obviously in real life, the destruction and ruins that are present in, you know, Western society right now are caused by the impacts of our economic system, right? Correct. The economic yep. precarity of advanced capitalism is re- directly responsible for, as an example, the ruins of Detroit. Right. Well, and, 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 and here's the thing with Detroit, not that I want to be unempathetic to the people that actually did, did suffer um, in Detroit throughout, like, again, the late 90s, early 2000s, although it is going through its resurgence. I do, I, I do have empathy there. But like, let me be unequivocally clear, like the consequences of neoliberalism on Detroit are so minute compared mm-hmm. to the consequences in southeastern Mexico, um, in sub-Saharan Africa, in Southeast Asia. So that's, that's the other thing. And I, and I have to add that in there. Mm-hmm. We don't even... Hollywood wouldn't even touch those topics. So no, yeah. that's why I had destruction yeah. and ruin, right? Because the ruins are in Detroit, but the destruction is global. 
Really and yes, is. and that's the point we're making. And 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 I and, and we could actually look and we could see like the destruction and devastation in those other places that is and we're wreaking havoc. I mean, some might even say like there's that might be a topic for another episode, but like the mass clearing of like Amazon Amazonian or Indonesian rainforest mm-hmm. and stuff like that is also like it's it's complete wholesale disruption. And and in this case, the ruins are not um, human made ruins; they're not they're nature made ruins. And mm-hmm. it kind of reverses that conversation we were having earlier. I think that's ripe for a little bit more of a deep dive later. I don't yeah. have. I'll be blunt; it just came to me right now, so I don't have the research behind it. But I actually might dig into that. You got me thinking about yeah. it. I like that a lot. Okay. Lastly, back to the original question, right? Why? Jared asked me, why must apocalyptic films contain mass destruction of material objects, right? Why is this necessary? And this is my own personal thoughts. And it's more morbid than I would like, but I think that it actually rings true. And that is that I think that the death of thousands of people doesn't actually have much meaning for most of us, not as much meaning as the destruction of iconic symbols. Right. So, you know, the example I have in here, because I watched this clip earlier today is an Independence Day when they show New York City and the Empire State Building getting blown up. The streets are full of people. Right. There's people sitting in taxi cabs. The street is completely packed with traffic and people are all standing. They get out of their cars to see this happen. The Empire State Building blows up. And as a result, it, the film is like pretty explicit here, right? It shows the fireball traveling down the city block and bodies being engulfed by this fireball and bodies being strewn about. And we're forced to reconcile with the fact that probably tens of thousands of people were killed as a result of the destruction of the Empire State Building. But when you're watching that film in the audience, the thing that is most impactful to you is the destruction of that symbol that is the Empire State Building. We can all relate to that in some way. The fact that you've seen 10,000 people executed on screen, like uh, that doesn't mean as much symbolically. It doesn't have the same sort of emotional like reaction for some reason, right? Now, the controversial thing that I'm going to say is that I actually think that the same is true in real life. I think that we are so detached from, we can't really wrap our brain around thousands of people dying the way that we can, the way that something symbolic impacts us, right? Like something being destroyed for that has some meaning to us that is really emotional and part of our consciousness and our psyche and our sense of self and our identity doesn't that has more meaning to us than seeing a news report about you know 100 people dying or a thousand people dying even i don't know what the cutoff is numerically but i think symbolism is really important with the material objects that get destroyed and that's why like in i am legend Basically, all of humanity is destroyed, but the audience is like really moved by the visual spectacle of New York City being abandoned as just one example. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's just a visual, um, very selfish, very materialistic culture. And that that and I think this reveals it, unfortunately. Um, and it doesn't it's not even just pertaining to like ruins and things along those lines. I just I just feel like we need things to be more tangible. And again, maybe it's maybe I'm being um, unfair here because I know for a fact when we talk and this is a different topic, not about ruins, but when we talk about things like Holocaust and genocides, um, we do know, like psychologists have done studies, that it's very difficult for someone to wrap their mind around what mm-hmm. six million Jewish citizens living throughout Europe, like the, the like the, the the horrible things they endured in basically mm-hmm. their execution over basically about what six years. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult for us to like wrap our mind around like that number and like all of like everything that had been had to happen for that to 
to take place. But in, if you show somebody an image of like the mechanization of the train system that took these individuals to the Auschwitzes or the Dachau's or the Sobibors, they, they make more of a connection then. Or if you show them what the actual camps look like, they make more of a connection or even on a personal connection because this has nothing to do with ruins. But like you, you can tell somebody 6 million people died between 1939 and 1945, and, and it's way more than that, but I'm just talking about the Jewish population. And that will mean less than if they actually read Anne Frank's personal account mm-hmm. um, to them. It, that, that's what will resonate with them, if that makes sense. So in that case, maybe I do have a little bit of hope. So maybe I came off a little bit unfairly as I opened this thought, and now the more I like kind of flesh it out, there's something missing, something missing with these like numbers and scaling. And it doesn't just have to do with like seeing the physical symbolic destruction Maybe Anne Frank in and of itself, using that example, that's symbolic, right? Maybe mm-hmm. she even loses her individualism in this case, in this example I'm using, and becomes more of the symbol, right? If that makes sense. I don't well, know. I don't like, know where I'm going with this. It's kind it of like a, it's, it's a thought experiment. develop a personal connection, right? Like I can yeah. connect with this other individual, Anne Frank, through her diary, right? And so that makes me have a personal connection to this event, right? Yeah. I think yeah. just like to your point, like if you look at showing people pictures of the ruins of like London, as an example, the cities that you mentioned earlier after the war, Stalingrad, right? Like, et cetera, yeah. like that is moving because people know what London like looked like and looks like yeah. today, right? But like you said, when you throw around the 6 million number, it's hard for people to relate to that. Like you said, scientists have studied that this is, it's impossible. It has no meaning to us. And I think that's important. And the film is actually, film in general is a really good example of this, right? Because, you know, there are countless examples of like, you might weep when you're watching a film when one person dies, a character dies that you have grown close to. But like I had zero emotional response when I saw thousands of people die in Independence Day in New York City, right? Yeah, I think, yeah, no, 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 no. I think that's important. I think I'm recanting my original thought on selfish materialism. I think it plays a role, but when we think about it, I think now that I flesh it out a little bit more in my head, this idea of personalization rather mm-hmm. than making individualism and materialism like the villain here, as I as I did as I opened the statement, I think it's more about like building that empathy because as humans, that's what we do. It's very hard to empathize with a large figure. It's very easy to empathize with an individual. And perhaps even in this case, empathize with a structure because we we make that connection subconsciously that that structure was built by people or housed people or people worked there. So maybe or I was being a little bit right? Like you said, the, yeah. seeing the White House get destroyed, that means, you know, my political system is com- political order ceases to exist, right? As an example. Yeah. Right. Something yeah. that something that yeah. rings true to me and my identity has been destroyed, right? Which is why New York mm-hmm. City is important because we are all vicarious New Yorkers, according to Weinstein, right? Fair enough. Anything to add? I'm good. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I know it might not seem like it, but making these episodes actually requires a lot of work on the part of Jared and I. So if you would like to support us, you can do so on Patreon. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much to all of our Patreon supporters. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Later.